You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. And so we commend Annabelle Fitzwillie Coslow to the dust when she came. Always keeping in mind the words of advice given to the tin man by the Wizard of Oz, that the size of your heart should be measured not by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. I hope you rot in hell, old witch. I hope you rot in hell. Do you hear me in there? Anybody home? I just want some popcorn. They are going to use the house. Mm-hmm. The girls are holding their goat night here tomorrow. Okay, goats, let's see them. <laughs> I myself prefer a big fat cucumber. I can't hear you. I myself prefer a big fat cucumber. What, is, what are you doing here? Is this some kind of joke? April Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also joining us this week is Mr. Jim Lazikowski. Hello there, and I prefer a medium to average-sized cucumber myself. On this special episode, we are taking a look at the 1986 film from William Fruitt, Killer Party. It's, it's the eventual story of three friends, Viv, Jennifer, and Phoebe, who rush a sorority. Viv and Phoebe more enthusiastically than Jennifer. The three make it in after Viv pulls a pretty great prank at their, quote, goat night, unquote, ceremony. Once they're part of the sisterhood, the three are put to work on the big April Fool's party where, unfortunately, they manage to stir up the unsettled spirit of a hazing victim and all hell breaks loose. Yada, yada, yada. We're going to be getting to spoilers. Unfortunately, Killer Party isn't really the most popular film around, and for a lot of years it wasn't on DVD, but now it's available via the Warner Archive. It'd probably be worth your while to check it out before hearing our discussion. So if you want to, feel free. Otherwise, just keep on listening. Now, Kat, before I asked you to be on this episode, had you ever even heard of or seen Killer Party before? Nope, never. So you can take my slasher queen crying away for that. Oh, man. Well, I wouldn't consider this a slasher. Well, maybe slasher? Kind of. Sort of. It's one of those mid-80s throw everything in. How about you, Jim? Has you even heard of it, seen it? Well, I first saw this in the early 90s when I rented it from a local mom-and-pop video store in Northwest Indiana with my best friend. Uh, We were the type to rent any horror movie that looked amusing to us, like everything from Psychos in Love to Blood Diner to Dead Alive. We we were hooked on watching all of these movies and hoping for a, a so bad it's good experience, or at least just something that would entertain us for the evening. And this was one of those movies, and it's it, it is the kind of that you used to see on the video store shelf and would just take a gamble on if you had a bunch of friends over, uh, much like April Fool's Day to some extent. So, what did you think when you saw it? 
I enjoyed it. We had a good time with it. I mean, it certainly helps when you have, uh, you know, witty friends around that can do an MST3K kind of approach to it. But um, we certainly enjoyed the final act. Um, that's something that, like, you know, we just we just liked it when a movie would go for broke. And it, it takes a while to get there because this is like three films rolled into one. It's like a teen sex comedy mixed with a little bit of a slasher. And then it becomes a possession movie. Um, and I would say I enjoy two out of the three um, genres that it, it plays around with here. Well, it's interesting because they really start with multiple stories going on. And that's the thing that really caught me the first time that I saw this. My friend Rich Osmond had sent me a copy of this on VHS, and I've said on the show before, whenever Rich would send me movies, I would they were always something very special. You know, he sent me Tourist Trap and Death Game and these kind of movies, and so this was one of those, and I was completely gobsmacked by the opening of this film, where it changes from a funeral where a corpse kind of comes back to life and drags this woman to her death in a, a, uh, a, a crematorium. Then it changes to the people who are watching the film in a drive-in, and then it changes into kind of like a vampire thing, and then it changes into a music video with these uh, this amazing song. <laughs> I love that song. It's yeah. like Thriller, the hair metal edition. With a bit of hammer horror thrown in as well at the beginning. It's very hammer, that like opening shot. I thought it was great. And I was telling Cap before we started recording that, that that's a real band. I had no idea that White Sister was a real band. This is off of, I believe, their second album, uh, the song April. Their second album, uh, Fashion by Passion. <laughs> and this is that wonderful era where we have yet to kind of weed out all the ugly people from music, you know? <laughs> Because <laughs> you can tell that, that that lead singer is like maybe six months away from losing all that hair in the front of his head. You know, he's just he's just combing it down, you know, really hoping nobody notices. But he's living the dream, though, isn't he? He's in the moment. They're no docking, mind, but I am going to have to oh, get yeah. that album. God, no, it's a it's a great song. And the, the music in this movie is fantastic. When the when the movie proper kind of opens. So we find out that. All of the stuff that we've been watching before is kind of part of this larger music video, kind of like to your point, Kat, it's kind of like thriller, I, I suppose, because it's nine minutes long. We finally get into the movie proper about nine minutes into this thing, and we find now that it's a story about three teenage, young 20s girls, I guess they're teenagers, I guess they're 18, going to college for the first time. It's close enough where they can ride their bikes to college. They got that slasher look where they're obviously a bit older, though, which makes them a bit ridiculous on the bikes with that Best Days of Our Lives song playing that as well. That song. <laughs> I, I love that song. <laughs> it's, so, it's so synth poppy that uh, I, I just have an affinity for that style. <laughs> The song is amazing, and it, it, there's, uh, I think, four songs all by Alan Brackett and Scott Shelley on the soundtrack, and I'm just like, where can I get these songs? I mean, the Best Times is a fantastic song. I, oh, man. I, I definitely, if all else fails, I'm going to rip it off of the DVD, and I'll put it on my iPod or put it in rotation, you know, because it's just... At the end of the year, when I do like the the mix of of music from all the episodes of the projection booth for the year, you can be guaranteed that song's going to be making the cut. Nice, as well it should. 
some of the other stuff pretty good of course casey and the sunshine band we get some of that when uh, uh, i was gonna mention that i had mm. that on single which i probably shouldn't ever admit in public because i was supposed to be a a slayer fan at the time (laughs) (laughs) it's a great song it is a great song and it's not one of their more you know it's one of those ones where you hear it and you're like oh yeah casey and the sunshine band i forgot that this was one of their their hits because you know everybody knows that's the way i like it and you know boogie shoes and those kind of things but it's just like oh yeah it was a little bit of a different take for them it wasn't as as disco-y you know but it was a solid solid song so we have our three heroines phoebe who is the first uh, girl that we see she's got kind of i don't know if i would say alternative she definitely wears more eye makeup than any of the other girls uh, i found myself attracted to her the most i think but <laughs> and then uh, jennifer who's going to be our hero and she's the normal one she's the the smart one i think you know she's she's basically you know wearing the dead meat sign around her, her neck the biggest and then viv the brain who uh well she's kind of brainy kind of not brainy she can't necessarily fix her bike but you know and she wears like a what is it like a wrestling headpiece when she's wearing her bike for protection you know you got to protect that brain she reminded me a bit of michelle pfeiffer in the witches of eastwick she had a bit of a michelle pfeiffer thing going on whereas the other girl was sybil shepherd (laughs) (laughs) what what about uh phoebe what got anything for her annie sheedy yeah i can see that a little sigourney weaver meets ally sheedy yeah uh, it was like a big 80s ensemble either way. Well, it's interesting because I didn't recognize hardly any of the actors in this film. No, nor me. No, I, they were quite I, good, I, though. I recognized the professor. <laughs> oh, of course. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's uh, quite ubiquitous around this time. Um, Paul Bartel, of course. Yeah, that whole sequence... Uh, put a smile on my face with um, when they go to the Greek Society Committee meeting. Yeah, especially when the former faculty advisor starts cracking up at the uh, video prank. <laughs> <laughs> I would have liked to see more of him, though, because he's always so good. I think, you know, he only got a couple of scenes, which was a bit, a bit mean. They should have had him in some more pranks so he could look suitably outraged. I was kind of almost hoping that he was his character from rock and roll high school, but now he had moved on to college, you know, but unfortunately he's just not that hip. I don't think Professor Zito has ever listened to the Ramones. No. (laughs) No way. The sight of odd socks outraged him, you know. Imagine what the Ramones would have done. He wouldn't have coped. <laughs> yeah, the wearing of one white sock and one red sock definitely were, was bringing down uh, the halls of culture for him. Well, he was trying to talk about Flaubert, you know, for fuck's sake. You can't have odd socks on show when you're talking Madame Bovary. <laughs> it's <just> not done. <laughs> the outrage. We set up stuff pretty early in this film. We've got the spooky old frat house on campus that the girls pass by on their bicycles, and Jennifer stops, and she's immediately got this connection to the spooky old house, and that's going to come back, of course. It's where our finale is going to take place. And then we move it to the sorority that they are trying to rush, and, I mean, it's within five seconds that you're just like, wow, there are a lot of really bitchy girls in the sorority. Right. Well, I'm British, and the sorority thing's always fascinated me because we just don't have that, and I just wonder why. 
You do have your secret societies, though, correct? Yeah, but everyone's a bit more perverse in those. And richer, but more powerful. <laughs> Who controls the British crown? Who keeps the metric system down? We do. We do. Who keeps Atlantis off the maps? Who keeps the Martians under wraps? We do. Of their sight, who rigs every Oscar night? We do, we do. Usually, it's the the more well-to-do I consider anyway that are in the fraternities and sororities, or at least that's that's what my impression is. I don't know. Jim's probably a big frat guy, and I'm I'm just talking out of turn here. No, heck no. <laughs> Uh, no, when you're when you're a, a big old movie nerd, even in college, it doesn't. The only place you're cool is at the video store, which is where I work. So, <laughs> but yeah, no, this uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of the uh, like Porky's Revenge of the Nerds kind of sequence with the fraternity members and the bees. I don't know. I just thought that was a little ridiculous, and I don't. I, it just just didn't work for me on a comedic level. It was a little too cheesy for my taste. Well, there was some good nudity, I have to say, and I was glad that they weren't afraid to do the nudity. Sure. No shower scene. Sitting in their hot tub naked in the middle of the day in the garden. Of course. I don't know. Is that a thing there? As well as burying people in your back garden. Oh, yeah. Well, that happens all the time, Mm. at least around here. I mean, you should see the headstones (laughs) in my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) That's why they give American people's yards. You know, I know you usually just have like a little garden plot, but we have the whole shebang so we can bury as many of, of our dead as we need to. See, spoiled. Books in the library, <laughs> chairs in the library. See, a yard in, in England is like a little, uh, about eight foot by eight foot square of concrete with a washing line on it. That's our yard. You you guys have stadium sized gardens full of headstones and naked chicks in the if if your cinema is anything to to go by, well, yeah, there there's a lot of documentary elements to this film. You guys talked about all the the different things that are going on in here: the possession film, the teenage sex comedy. But I was really seeing documentary because this felt very much like my college experience. <laughs> oh, of course, always pulling pranks on college girls, carrying around a bottle of bees. You know, that was pretty much standard. Stuff. <laughs> the bees that only went for the naked women as well. They were clever bees. Very yeah, clever bees, very yeah. Clever bees. That's why they're dying out now. They're too clever for Aww. their own good. I was reminded a little bit of Sorority Babes at the Slimeball Bolorama sure. during this scene. Yeah. Uh, especially because it's like the dweeby guy and the fat guy, and they're just like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> No paddling. Literally falling over one another. No paddling, though, but, but that it, comes later on. And what's interesting is that there's a correlation to, to their deaths because they're wearing bee costumes. really smart writing there this movie is really really smart at a lot of points yes man i missed that i really didn't give it that much we've got this interesting character of mrs henshaw who i kind of really don't understand her character at all she seems like she's the house mother but she's moving to new york soon is she the the mother of the 
dead kid from 1964 who died in a hazing thing. Alan, I think his name is. And she was like a bit insane in a very gleeful way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kept waiting for her to turn into Mrs. Voorhees, but she is taken out like yeah, that. I know. Oh, I know. Disappointed. And she dies with a, what are you doing here? Kind of a thing, which comes back a few times in the film. And I'm not sure I necessarily know who that is that kills everybody. <laughs> no, I don't yeah, early, early on, bef- early on before the possession stuff. Yeah. I, that's a good question. I mean, I guess it's the spirit embodying somebody else, but we don't ever get to see who that somebody else is. Um, that's yeah, that's interesting. And you know, a lot of the cuts here, clearly feel like i mean we would just, we, we should have been seeing a lot more gore i think because it was initially shot in like 1978 then production halted and the rest was finished like six years later then it sat on the shelf for two years and i guess all of the original cuts you know gory sequences were just uh completely excised for some reason now you're not serious about it actually being shot in 78 i thought so i thought that's what i read <laughs> I, I say, cannot confirm really or deny this. That is really interesting because then it precedes House on Sorority Row, which I thought it took some some cues from. I know they were writing about it in Fangoria shortly before it came out. Well, maybe like a year or so before it came out. So I don't see it being shot that early. Uh, and I know that they changed the, the name because of April Fool's Day. And at one point it was going to be called Fool's Night which is interesting in mm. killer party, I suppose kind of makes sense, but I can't say it's the best title in the world. Well, there's no. only like five minutes of party. Pretty much. A lot of other things, a bit like Mardi Gras massacre, which has sort of Mardi Gras, lots of massacre, but a minute of Mardi Gras with no massacre in it. <laughs> it was sort of one of those things. <laughs> it was just like, what should we call it? Mm. Can't call it, you know, that let's just call it killer party. Which makes it very difficult to Google for, I have to tell you. Yeah, but what most would you definitely. have called it? What would it have been called if it wasn't called that? I mean, April Fool's does make a lot of sense. Though I have to say, sorry, I, I'm not going to try to poke holes in this movie. But so the, they open and they're rushing the sorority. And so I'm taking it that it's the fall, unless there are two rushes for things like a fall and a mid-semester or something but like usually semesters are out at least around here unless you're doing a trimester thing but semesters are usually out around april may kind of thing and this is like they go from rushing the sorority to having this april fool's day party like within a matter of weeks like i thought i was watching last night again going now is there more time am i really supposed to understand that there's more time happening between these two but no it's like you did such a good job at that party last night you're going to be planning out the april (laughs) fool's thing and i'm like wow okay i mean it is as soon as the three girls make it into the sorority that they're like immediately being tasked or viv is being tasked like okay you got to come up with some good pranks for this next one see i thought you had april fools on halloween in one from watching this yeah that's what it feels like right it feels like autumnal as well i thought they were going Mm -hmm. for the halloween vibe. yeah had it been an october party had it been a halloween party that makes sense with the costumes and everything i've never seen people dress up for april (laughs) fool yeah that is a very strange choice i mean especially when i saw those crazy bee guys again i was like wait a minute why why is everybody dressing up for this thing i mean i i never i don't think i've ever even had an april fool's party 
So I don't know. <laughs> it's just something you pull you pull pranks on people randomly when they least expect it. But I don't know if you have a big gathering of friends for it. Other things are probably big deals for sororities and fraternities. I'm sure they're looking for any excuse to throw parties. But April Fool just seems like a really strange time to celebrate and yeah especially to do it in costume i think they were just trying to be clever maybe they thought initially to do halloween then they thought no that's been done let's be really clever let's do april fall but we won't change the script we'll just run with it and it also gives them the chance i mean i know we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit but when it comes to the party stuff you know the whole idea of them pranking each other and you never know what's real and what's not i mean they don't really carry that through as well as they might have there's at one point there's a, a dead body on the floor and i was waiting for it to sit up and be like april fool no but those two guys were pretty believable when they got into their fight i was like you know i, I bought that one i was like oh <laughs> good 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 going guys you fooled me That's, that <laughs> scene was amazing it was just so ridiculously over the top for a prank <laughs> it was so choreographed considering they had a day to plan it as well Getting back to familiar faces, when we see Paul Bartel for the first time doing his professorial duty, that's also when we're introduced to Martin, who's a familiar face to me. He was uh, Francis's friend and, and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and there are a lot of other things that he was in where I'm like, oh, okay, I know this guy. He seems to be obsessed with two things. One is Madame Bovary, and the other one is Jen. And I kept thinking throughout the film that he was going to turn out to be the killer. I mean, he basically is a terrific red herring because he's this little dweeby guy obsessed with our one of our main characters and he sneaks into the party dressed as madame bovary he you know he's even making out with viv and looking up at jen's room and all this kind of stuff so i'm just like oh yeah there's something really off about this guy he's going to be a terrific killer but no i remember him from goodies where he had some fabulous knitwear in that but he was my hero in in this because i am too obsessed with madame bovary i have a question about the subtext of sexuality in madame bovary go away martin i was cheering him on especially with the costume you know that was that was a nice touch other than him making out with viv and being obsessed with jennifer because viv to me i thought she was pretty hot and she was very into it when she was making out with him she was really getting into it what are you doing what do you want done i don't know i didn't know i'd get a choice let me think oh martin you're so sexy i know oh martin martin touch me touch me Touch me! Touch me! Here! Where? Here! There? Yes! Now? Now! Yeah, it sort of seemed that way. She must have just uh, really liked the crazy, wacky, nerdy guy who overreacted to a lot of different things, including just the sight of a fake head in a box. Like, just (laughs) (laughs) him driving off the road was just ridiculous. Yeah, but if he's reading Madame Bovary, you know, there's, there's a deep pull there. You don't know. Sure. She thought he'd pick some up some tips or something. I was really hoping for more spanking in this movie. You know, we talk about sorority babes, and I was really hoping, like, Jen takes one good swat, and that's about it. I was hoping for, like, a you know, whole scene going on here, but... But it's also great if you're into sploosh porn, because this whole scene of, of uh, them at their goat night initiation and getting raw eggs cracked over their faces uh, and having to catch them in, the, in their Yuck. mouth... God, that, that was me disgusting. Out so much. It was on yeah. a par with 
Has anyone seen Dead Sushi? Oh, no, there's, I've got it. You should see a 2005 Japanese film about dead sushi, and there's a kiss in that, a French kiss with a full egg in the kiss. I thought that was the oh. grossest egg thing I'd ever seen, but this this was on a level with that. I just... Oh. What made it worse was when they had to spit out the raw eggs into the cups. I thought they were going to make them drink them, but they took yeah. them away. <laughs> That's I thought they were going to weigh them and see who had the most egg in their mouth, but... You can just tell how our bleep. minds work. <laughs> <laughs> I could use some goat bleeding, though. That was uh, very entertaining. They would spit out the egg and then just uh, do a goat imitation. <laughs> Weird sorority here, folks. I know, they just really didn't use that goat thing enough. Mm-mm. When they started talking about goats, I thought there was going to be some satanic elements. And there's whispers of the occult, but it doesn't really get used. What I'm guessing is Viv pulls a prank at their goat night ceremony, their their initiation ceremony. And it has to do with, well, a bunch of stuff. It's pretty spectacular that she managed to pull this prank off. And there's a beheading in the prank uh, with this guillotine that, I guess she found lying around, and that's kind of the crux of it, is that this guillotine, I believe, was used in the beheading of Alan, the the, the dead frat kid who died in, in a hazing. And I guess it's supposed to be a trick guillotine, but it seems to work pretty darn well, because uh, it really cuts off the heads of everybody. And I think it's her messing around with the guillotine that kind of awakens the spirit of Alan. At least that's my thought on this. Uh, see, I, I yeah. missed that bit. <laughs> That's what that's what Alan says towards the end when he's confronting the the last of the girls outside. It's like you awoken my spirit by using that guillotine again, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> like like you do, you know. Don't touch the yeah, guillotines. I want to know how Viv made a prosthetic head of herself that lo- actually looked like her while she was on the guillotine, and how she got out of the guillotine took the tape off her mouth, replaced the head while they were all standing there looking at her. It was pretty good that she was able to do that. She was a fucking genius. Yeah. Well, I guess that maybe lends credence to the quick change that Jen will do later into the full diving outfit, if that's really her in the diving outfit. (laughs) Anyone listening to this who hasn't seen it is just going to be like, what, what? But it is one of those films, like, what? Like, every time I, like, blink and it's, like, someone in a diving outfit you know, having their peg <laughs> thrown in your mouth, someone in a guillotine. I'm like, hang on, Paul Bartel running around outraged about socks. It's like, <laughs> it's like, why have I never heard of this film? Yeah, and he dies way too early. He manages to go to the frat house for some reason and does the same, what are you doing here? And then we see him dead in a closet later on. And I, I was just so sad. I was really hoping that maybe he would even save the day at the end of the film. See, I was kind of hoping he'd get one of the girls coming on to him in a sort of prom night sort of thing, you know, but no. Well, even if Jen was maybe kind of coming on to him, you know, because the, the, when she was possessed, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah definitely. Because they killed him. I think the way the movie opens sort of sets the tone in a way where it constantly pulls the rug out from under you and sort of subverts your expectations. Because like it starts out as one movie, then you know it changes up and then it changes again, and that's kind of how the movie plays out in of itself. 
I almost wish that that opening had just kind of continued. Like we just kept going from one thing to another to another, or even at one point, maybe if we want to kind of circle back and, you know, have like the, uh, the, the funeral stuff continue on and, and then go back to the, the concession stand, like the drive-in theater, all these kind of things. But I love that way that they were taking us and moving us from one thing to another. I, I think I could have put up with that for 90 minutes. And we would have yeah, had more songs. We would have had more songs. Yeah, more songs. It would be like yeah. a horror version of Amazon Women on the Moon or something. Oh, exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which somebody should start making right now if they're hearing this. Mm. <laughs> No, that would be great. And I mean, these days, you know, we've got so many different tropes and stuff that we kind of just put in there and subvert. Because, yeah, this this does subvert a lot of stuff. And, and to put demons in college, I mean, I know we've had that before and everything. But just, uh, yeah, you're going down one path and it's just going to veer this way and that. And we never really know. And they keep us guessing. I mean, to I, I here I am questioning kind of the logic of the film as far as like where does this guy in the diving suit kind of come in and and it comes goes around the April Fool party and just murdering everybody, but I don't really care. You know, it's just fun to watch. How often do you get to see people stab with a trident? Well, it's interesting. The screenwriter Barney Cohen uh, he wrote what a lot of people would consider to be the best Friday the Thirteenth movie, the final chapter. So that's uh interesting um resume that he has uh and in addition to i think this this director he's 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 one of those interesting canadian filmmakers that i'd like to explore more of uh the only one i've seen the only other film of his i've seen is death weekend i believe it's like a it's it's a very much like a straw dogs kind of story um involving a couple that's kind of uh you know just sort of hiding in a in a summer home and then they get accosted by these bikers and it's really dark and intense and claustrophobic and stuff so yeah i just it's both of these elements with the screenwriter and director i I think they make a good team here because they don't take themselves too seriously and they sort of change things up from time to time to where you're not sure what to expect they definitely know the genre there's a lot of reference points in there but like you said they subvert them i really enjoyed that i just would like to have seen more more gore more sadism yeah. and more nudity. But the actual story was quite fun. I was reminded towards the end, so the, there is demon possession. It does happen. <laughs> Don't tell me it didn't happen, because I saw it happen. Uh, about It's an hour and 20 minutes in, though, before the full demon possession really happens. And we've only got about 10 more minutes of the film to go. I mean, they could have played that out for a lot longer, but again kind of switching it up right towards the end when Jen is possessed by this demon. She's got this, to me, I I was really reminded of the evil dead during that part. Uh, Just the way that her eyes change and the whole thing of like her, you know, I'm all better now. I'm, I'm pushing the demon out kind of thing. It reminded me of, you know, what was it? Linda, when her head's in the vice kind of thing, you know, And it's good, too, because the demon gets to move from body to body because it also possesses Phoebe. And at first I was thinking, like, so, you know, Jen is our hero. So I was very surprised, spoilers, that she 
get ends up getting stabbed and killed. And then I was like, oh, this is interesting. It's going to move to Phoebe as our hero because she starts to really kind of, you know, get into Viv's face a little bit as far as like, you know, you were the one that did this. You know, she, Jen was the only one who didn't want to be here. We were the bad people. We made her go into the sorority, that kind of stuff. And then when it changes again and she's the demon, I was like, oh, wow. And then the ending, I was, I love the end the of ending this film. The ending was brilliant. Yeah. It's interesting that this actually predates Night of the Demons because they use that to fuller effect in that where people jump from demon to demon. But like you said, mm-hmm. I would have liked to have seen more of that. They could have done that for the whole party. And that's kind of what I maybe thought they were going for with the idea of the the deep sea diver, which just somebody going around. And I like that a lot of times we don't even see the deaths. I mean, that, that could be to the whole thing of them eliminating the gore from yeah. the film. <laughs> when, when the, the uh, heavier of the two geeks, uh, when he takes a, what would that be a harpoon gun to where his stinger would be in his B costume? Wow. Yeah. But then the other nerd says, you look like you're going to burf. Like he doesn't say, he doesn't say barf. He says burf. You look like you're going to burf. And then he's just dead in the yeah. next scene. So. <laughs> But yeah, that's the moment where I thought maybe they would all get up and say, April Fool's. Like, I was thinking it would be, you know, like completely unplausible, you know, yeah. but that it would still happen. See, I thought the bees were in the diving suit. Hmm. It was the bees all along. And here I thought Marvin was in the the diving suit. So they keep us guessing, Cat. They do. It's a bit like a gory version of Midsummer Murders, I thought, to to. When they go, what are you doing here? It was very Midsummer Murders. Now, are you talking about the uh, the British detective show? Yes, Britishism. Sorry, (laughs) (laughs) I've been watching that recently, so I completely can see that. I am reminded of Hot Fuzz all the time when I'm watching the Midsummer Murders. See, now I come from actually the village that I live in is where Simon Pegg is from. He was lucky enough to escape, so I'm from Hot Fuzz Country. I fucking love that film. <laughs> we are all like that, though. Crusty jugglers. That's so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all for the greater it's good. It's very Midsummer Murders. And that's probably why we didn't see Killer Party, because our video shop only had six videos in it. So. And no, you all shared that one book at the library. <laughs> I was just going to say you had no videos at your library. Hell no. Oh, no. Who want those for? <laughs> You poor thing. We're too busy pruning our immaculate gardens. That's what we're doing. <laughs> Sitting around in the study, getting murdered or trying not to get murdered or planning murders. So is there anything else we want to talk about Killer Party? Um, I like the cinematography. I thought it was well shot. And I, when I looked who, uh, who shot the film, it's a guy by the name of John Lindley who went on to shoot Stepfather, Serpent in the Rainbow, and Field of Dreams of all movies. So he, he became kind of like an A-lister uh, later on. But I guess him and the director didn't get along so well on set because uh, Lindley really went crazy with lighting and would take way too long to set up certain shots and just was a perfectionist, I guess you could say. So, yeah. He had extravagant lighting methods, which, you know, I mean, you don't really necessarily see throughout the entire movie. But I, you know, I thought it was actually well shot for a movie from this era. The production um, overall was really good. I mean, even the music and the scenes. And I thought the acting was a lot better than 
that usual yeah. standard. Even though the most of the actors were sort of unknowns, they were really quite good. Especially the three main girls were quite believable, I thought. When when Jen is possessed and she's up on the roof and drooling and stuff, I was just, oh my God, this girl is wonderful. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was really good. My Viv was my favorite, though. Yeah, oh yeah. She was cool. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with the writer of Killer Party, Barney Cohen, right after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth donate today it's the right thing to do you may know him as john cross from the podcast from the after movie diner or you may not know him at all But now you can know him as Miscellaneous Plumbing Fixtures with the release of his new album, Catch Up or Don't, See If I Care. Available now on Bandcamp, iTunes, Amazon, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever music is found. A full 16 new folk, blues, and rock tracks from this bearded singer-songwriter. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and at aftermoviediner.com. For links to the album and to learn more, go to miscplumbingfixtures.blogspot.com or miscplumbingfixtures.bandcamp.com. Let me recommend founditemclothing.com for the best way you can get your geek on. Found Item Clothing has everything to proudly display your nerd love from Star Wars to Star Trek, from TMNT to BTTF. And with Halloween right around the corner, Found Item Clothing has a wider range of costumes, from Snake Plissken to Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude. From Snake Plissken to the Dude and everything in between. And everything in between. Visit FoundItemClothing.com today. Before it's too late. Killer Party is it's like one of my orphan children. You know, everybody talks about the other stuff. Well, yeah, looking at your CV, you have had quite a career. Just it, It's so varied. It's amazing. Yeah, this is my third career. And uh, my first career, I was an ad man. 
on Madison Avenue. Actually, it wasn't on Madison Avenue. It was in, in Manhattan that did a lot of film. I did ad campaigns. I was a creative guy. I did ad campaigns for different movies and, and uh, you know, uh, all genres. For whatever they threw at me, I would do the ad campaign for it. So I became something of a generalist in terms of movies. And in my next career, I was a journalist. worked for the New York Times and had an interesting deal with them that allowed me to moonlight as long as I gave them first priority. So I worked for a lot of different magazines doing a lot of different things. Uh, for instance, at, at American Photographer, which is now American Photo, I could do pretty much anything I wanted as long as I could find the photographer who shot it and I could profile. So I jumped out of a helicopter, a moving helicopter with the 101st Airborne, uh, the Screaming Eagles, and I've hunted moose without a gun. So I've had a, a really fun career. And then when I finally went into movies because somebody wanted to make a TV movie off one of my articles, I just continued being a generalist doing, uh, I like playing with my head. Who used to say that? Georgie Carlin? What was the article that you wrote and what did they want to turn it into? Well, that I don't want to talk about because it didn't happen. Okay. But the, uh, the director, the guy who was going to direct it, then decided he wanted to make a movie with me. <clears throat> he wanted to make a movie with me, but he had a target of opportunity <clears throat> to do some CBS after school specials. So I did one called The Year of the Gentle Tiger, which was about judo, which I knew nothing about. And then I did another one called Escape from Death Valley, which was directed, I think, by Jake Gyllenhaal's father, Steve, a band that crashed, uh, the high school band that crash lands in Death Valley and makes its way out. And then I was hired to write an after school miniseries called The Inside Out Clown, which is about a fat kid who goes to clown school. And that was a lot of fun because I got to hang out at the circus. I went to the Sarasota Sailor Circus, which is a, a training ground for clowns. I learned to walk a wire. It was, it was really a lot of fun. But they never made it. So uh, what happened was the the, the director of, um, of the two after-school specials and the guy who was going to direct the after-school miniseries hired me to write a movie called French Quarter with uh, Bruce Davison and Virginia Mayo. It was Virginia Mayo's last movie. I think I ended her career. But it got nice reviews, and Leonard Malton gave it three stars, called it an undiscovered drive-in classic. But here's the problem. At about the same time, a director named Joe Zito, who had done, well, he'd done whatever you look up. He's done a lot of horror stuff at that time. He had read uh, The Inside Out Clown, and he fell in love with the kids. And he hired me to write Friday the 13th, the final chapter. His direction to me was, look, don't think up a lot of extraordinary things to do to the kids. Just create real kids like in your after-school specials. And whatever we do to them will be horrific. He was right about that because I've always, in my film career, been character-driven and, and, and write real people as much as I can. I was not a horror fan, although as a child I had read a lot of Tales from the Crypt. So... I was trying to channel my Tales from the Crypt thing, reminiscences, you know, the usual thing, under the cover, flashlight, that kind of thing. When I found out that right across town, I'm living in Manhattan still, right across town, there's a triple feature, Friday, Friday 2 and Friday 3, and I'm writing Friday 4. And the nature of Friday movies, whenever I get invited to a Friday party, everybody knows everything about the ones Fridays before them and nothing about the ones after them because they did their research on the ones before them, and <laughs> didn't really care much about the ones after them. You know the old expression, it's a philosopher, twice a pervert. So I went, I went across town, 
And I watched all three of them. And then I'm in a cab going back through Central Park. And I realized, oh, my goodness, I closed my eyes at all the hits. So I told the cabbie, when you get to the other side, turn around. I got to go back. And I watched again with my eyes open. And then I wrote Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Now, what happened was Friday the 13th, the final chapter, that's the one where Corey Feldman kills Jason, came out at about the same time as French Quarter. So the industry being what it is, nobody gave a crap about my three stars from London Malton and an undiscovered driving classic. They wanted me to do horror movies. So for the next, I would say, I don't know, I'd have to look at my bio. But for, for the next long time, I could only write horror movies. In fact, that's what brings us to Killer Party. Yeah. Now, how did you come up with, with Killer Party and how did that one get turned into a feature? I did not come up with Killer Party. What happened was I had a friend. I had set, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, had set a Paramount Pictures opening, non-holiday opening weekend box office record. It stood for a couple of years before the, then the blockbusters came out, and that record gets broken every two months. But I had that record, and Frank Mancuso uh, was the, um, the, the head of, um, of um, Paramount Pictures. And I had a friend who made exquisite television movies, not the Mother May I Sleep With Danger kind of movies, although a friend of mine made that too. But things like Frank and uh, Murder in Coweta County, you know, wonderful, wonderful, high-class uh, television movies. And he just had a bug in his ear to do a horror movie. And I said, um, it's the late Michael Lepner, by the way. You can look him up, L-E-P-I-N-E-R, who died too soon. And I said, Michael, I'm going to be a stain on your record. He said, yeah, but I really want to do it. And he told me this idea that he had, which was at the time called April Fool. However... Somebody else was making April Fool. That was the one with um, Deborah, the, the gal from Valley Girl. We lost the title, and I don't know who came up with Killer Party, but basically it was, it was his idea to do an April Fool prank that turns between a fraternity and a sorority that turns into a slasher. A couple of interesting things happened to me in that movie. One is I learned a great deal about the pitching couch, not the casting couch. But the pitching couch, because we went to Paramount in New York, still living in New York at this time. Uh, we went to Paramount Pictures in New York, pitched to Frank Mancuso, the capo de tutti copy at Paramount, and we're sitting on the couch, and he's clearly not listening to us. It's, it's not exactly, you know, that Hollywood story of he's getting a blowjob or whatever, or he's taking calls. He was just looking at us with a kind of glazed look on his eye. And so when we left, Lepner and I, and, and also a guy named Ken Kaufman, um, who made those exquisite movies with uh, Lepner. Uh, when we left, we thought, well, we blew that pitch. But by the time we got back to the office, there were several messages uh, about how, we, how badly they wanted the show. And in retrospect, I figured this out about 10, 15 years later. He bought, well, he, he didn't buy it because we didn't sell it to him. We wound up selling it to MGM the, the following week. But um, he, he was interested in the show largely because what he saw on the couch. He saw one guy, me, who had just set for him a Paramount Pictures opening weekend, non-holiday opening weekend record with a horror movie. And sitting next to me is an exquisite television movie maker who shoots on time, on budget, 21-day shoot, win an Emmy. I believe we could have sold him our underpants. He just liked that group. So that was something I learned, but didn't really learn until 10 or 15 years later when somebody kind of explained it to me. Uh, and so right now, you know, I, I, I'm still in a career. I'm still working. 
Uh, I'm, I'm very cognizant of who's sitting on the couch when you pitch. A lot of people have told me throughout my career that I ought to direct. I don't want to direct because it's just too much work and too much responsibility. But th this is an example of why they do this. We were shooting in Toronto, and I'm, I'm at home in New York, and they call me from time to time. And finally, they called me and said, well, you got to come up here. So I said, uh, why? So they said, well, because one, one of the characters' dialogue isn't working. I can't recall at the moment, but if you want me to, which character it was. It's very pretty blonde. And uh, I said, that can't be. It can't be that I've written real people for six or eight sorority girls, and this one doesn't work. So I got up, and I uh, got up there, and I, and I took a look at the girl and um, the young woman, and I said to Lepner, you know, her hair is wrong. He said, we didn't call you up to be hair guy. <laughs> we wanted you to write. I said, yeah, but if, if you look at the narrative, I wrote a particular kind of young woman, basically the Brett girl. I don't know if you remember the Brett girl, but the, the page boy blonde who's kind of a northeast version of a valley girl. And and this this girl's hair was kind of early punky. And I said, can we just change her hair and see what that works? So they did. And of course, the dialogue worked terrifically. Whenever I have a situation where I have to split duties with another producer, because I, I often produce the things that I write. Not always, but often. I always say, okay, I'll take prep, because uh, I know I can shape the look of the movie in prep, and I can't do that if I'm arguing with actors. Then the last thing I learned about it, I didn't realize until it was it walked in into, of all the horror movie stores in the world, you had to walk into mine. Uh, I'm signing autographs uh, for, I don't remember, it was either Friday the 13th or Forever Night, The Vampire Detective. Both have their cults, and um, and people sign autographs for money. I, I never charge for autographs. I think if somebody wants my autograph, God bless them. Uh, but I'm sitting there signing autographs either for either for Forever Night or, or Friday. Nobody ever asks me about Sabrina. You know, I also created Sabrina the Teenage Witch, but nobody ever asked for that. They ask for these two things, and all of a sudden, you know, there's a kind of a lineup that people that they have they have DVDs and, and whatever they've got. And I'm signing them, I'm signing them, I'm signing them. And all of a sudden, the guy comes walking in with his girlfriend, and he's carrying a full-size subway poster, a one-sheet mounted on board of Killer Party. And I, like, melted for this guy. I said, yeah, I'll sign it. I'll, I'll, I'll sign it in blood. What are you on? Because it was like this, this orphan child that had kind of slipped away and, and now is coming back into the, into the shop. And uh, that was... Just a great moment. When, when people like the stuff that you're famous for, that's fine. I mean, but that's, you know, that's, that's, that's dog bites man. When they like something you're not famous for, that's man bites dog. Just a wonderful moment. And whenever, whenever stuff like that happens, I'm just so, so incredibly pleased. Now, I'm not unaware that in these multivarious horror books, you may write them yourself, that Killer Party gets pretty nice kudos for what it is that I do well for character uh, and dialogue and stuff like that. Now I've seen them. I actually had somebody send me a compendium of quotes from different such books, but that's, it's nice to know, but the guy walking in with his girlfriend and their favorite movie, they've watched it 27 times. That's just the greatest thing ever. Michael Lepner's credited as producer, but he didn't direct this. So how did uh, William Fruitt end up directing? In those days I had no, say in producing as a matter of fact the story i told you about the hair was one of the things that led me to have the confidence to say i'll write it but i also want to be one of the producers for it came in i'd be the violetner or ken kaufman and when i met him i met him when i 
came up that day to Toronto. I remember he had a blue MG. And we, we rode around Toronto for a while chatting about why this girl's dialogue didn't work. And he had, all these, he had all these ideas about how to make it work. And uh, which I would have done if at the end of the day that I said, look, she is what she is. You know, rewrite the dialogue for what she is. But she fits so nicely into the into the piece as a Brett girl. So I don't I, I don't know who brought through it in. Were you ultimately happy with uh, how they adapted the screenplay? I am never happy with anything, anything at all. I'm not because, you know, you sit in the you sit in the in the in the screening room at the rough cut and. And you, you sink slowly into your seat. Sometimes things that you thought were wonderful uh, come out not so wonderful. Often, things that you thought were just meh come out great. And you, you feel even worse about those. I, I, there are at least two movies that I've done. In a movie called Stunts, one of the, not, not a stuntman, but a property, property master guy, uh, was outfitting one of the stuntmen and said, the hell with dialogue, let's wreck something. Well, that went into the movie. It was the best line in the movie, and when they did, made a T-shirt of the movie, that was on the back of the T-shirt. Now, I have several of those T-shirts, but I did not write that line. And there's a line in Next Door, the Jimmy Woods, Randy Quaid movie, that Jimmy did on an ad lib. And I, I'm not remembering it now, but it was, it was so perfect. It had to do with, you know, jumping on a plane for Alaska or something like that when they had... That was another prank movie. Um, and, and, and so a lot of times you'll see you'll see uh, the director and producer have completely misunderstood what you were trying to do and have done something that works but doesn't work as well. And a lot of other times you'll have stuff like let's wreck something and it's just two times better than anything you did. And so it, it never comes out exactly the way you want it. Should I direct? Yes, I should, but I don't want to. The thing that I remember the most from Killer Party is that opening and just the way that you are continuously pulling the rug out from from the viewer. It is just so terrific. Let's just start with the writer. By the way, I want to correct something. The guy in the closet is not me. A lot of people think me in the closet. It's Paul Bartel. We do look a little bit alike. I'm better looking. But that's not me in the closet. Everybody thinks that's my Hitchcock moment. I don't have any Hitchcock moments. I don't do that. Uh, Paul Bartel's name, uh, Professor Zito, is that a, uh, a nod back to your yes, Friday of, the 13th director? Yes, of course. It's Joseph Zito. It's one of those unexpected mixes of comedy and horror, which it's a rare comic horror film that actually works. I would not attempt to sit down and write a comic horror film per se. That happened by accident. And that happened this way. I make jokes that to keep myself entertained at the keyboard. And I make visual jokes and I make dialogue jokes and I make, I make all, all kinds of uh, interactive jokes. Here's a, an absurd example. In the year of the gentle tiger, the coach, the coach says to, uh, I forget the character's name, show Timmy your Harai Makikomi. And I write, Timmy whips out the lot, a schlong the size of a Toyota. And of course they catch that and they, they laugh and they take it out. But some of the jokes are more subtle and in this particular in this particular script, it was full of the kind of humor you're talking about, and they didn't take out much of it. And the reason they didn't is because because what because what happened to Lepna was what I predicted would happen to him. He wanted to do a a slasher movie, but not too slashery. You know, the guy was an exquisite TV a movie maker, so. When the when 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 the the slashing got got a bit of a haircut, 
it seemed I, it seemed to the to the producers and the editor that the the humor should stay in because they kind of balanced out, uh, and that's why it's like that. Generally, the uh, ge- I, I I had a lot of funny funny stuff on Friday the Thirteenth, and it's still some of it's still in there, but most of it's gone. Uh, and I don't mean stuff like that are obvious jokes for the people reading the script. I mean things that are in in, in the movie, but. Yeah, I, I I guess I started out to to make a comic horror in an unconscious sort of way. I didn't start out to make a comic horror. I just wrote a script that had a lot of humor in it, and the director and and the producers decided to leave a lot of it in. I know Friday the Thirteenth Four really did a whole lot for you for your career and everything. Did Killer Party do anything for you, and or how was it kind of handled when it came out? Killer Party sank like a stone, which is why I love. And no, it did not do. It's a night. I don't know why everybody, you know, if you, if you make a movie and it doesn't do well, everybody blames it on the distributor. And it's sometimes true. Um, uh, so I, I just, I just have no idea. Um, Michael got sick after that and, um, Lettner and, uh, so, and, and then Ken went off, off in a different direction. So I didn't, I didn't really do much follow up. We didn't do a movie together again, although Ken remained a friend for a long time. Can you tell me, how did you get involved with, um, Red Scorpion? Oh, well, that's also Zito. Uh, they had a script and they had a deal and they were, they were casting. And Joe said to me, you got to help me on this. It's a terrible script. So I came in, I was essentially rewriting the script, uh, while they were casting. Uh, so I met Dolph and I, I had a, I had a pretty good, I, I had done a couple of, uh, I think they're uncredited uncredited uh pieces for joe's chuck norris movie maybe that came after there's a way to write for people that are non-traditional actors uh some people need uh, a lot of dialogue to get up ahead of steam so you write a lot of dialogue for them before the line you want them to say and then you cut out the stuff some of them you give them a lot of dialogue they don't remember it so you have to write it the other way so i i you know, and and I don't want to think saying anything about Dolph Lundgren and, and Chuck Norris. They both had great careers, and Dolph's continuing to have a great career. But they both had different rhythms um, for for how they how they delivered uh, their little speeches. So I was uh, they they flew me out. I was still in New York. They flew me out, and they put me up in a little hotel and with a computer and um, typing away while they're doing that. And uh, and then the then the discussion came up. Uh, you're gonna be the co-writer, so yeah, I wanted to be the co-writer. Of course, I did a lot of work, did most of the script. They did, had decided to shoot it in South Africa, actually Namibia, I guess. Anyway, they shot it in the place where we, where we were boycotted. And I'm a liberal, and Hollywood's a liberal town, and I didn't want my name on it. So I said, "No, well, just fine, just pay me." At the end of the day, I, I noticed that somebody ratted me out, and they they put me on the um, they put me on the IMDb, but as an associate producer. A credit that I would never take, by the way, if, if offered to me. You know, I, I don't like fighting with the IMDb. They have a half a dozen mistakes in my thing. It's very hard to clear them up. Nothing really bothers me. But that's how I got involved with that. I spent two weeks in L.A. Um, basically rewriting the original script. One of the things, maybe you can clear this up because this might be another IMDb thing, is I had read that you were involved with the uh, canon version of Spider-Man. Is that true? Yeah, there's a there's a one you, should, you can look it up if you want. There's a wonderful article in the uh, whatever the L.A. Times Sunday Magazine is, and I forget what it was called, but it's about the eleven writers of Spider-Man. I was the third writer of Spider-Man with Menachem Menachem Golan. I rewrote John Brancato and Ted Newsom. 
I got rewritten by a, a Korean filmmaker named um, I forgot, but his movie, his famous movie was Down Twisted. What what had happened was I had written it with for Joe. He had hired hired me to do that, uh, and then Menachem wanted to write some budget out of it, and so we did. And then he wanted him to, us to write some budget out of it some more, and we did. Albert Pond, P-Y-U-N. And then he wanted us to write it for $2 million, and we said no, and we both quit. And he got Albert Pond to do it for $2 million. And then it got found its way to uh, James Cameron, who essentially um, spell-checked it and put his name on it. And then it went to three or four other writers. To Cameron's credit, he put his name on it and mine. But he didn't make it. If he'd have made it, that would have been cool. But David Kep finally got the credit. I got paid, but the other ten writers, uh, uh, I guess they got paid. I don't know. I got paid, uh, but they didn't get credit. Now, is there any anything that you wrote that ended up being in the the Raimi version? Yeah, but plenty. Uh, it, it was very difficult to watch, actually. Um, the, not so much in the first one because my uh, my villain was Doctor Ock. So in the second one. It, it was difficult. It was difficult to watch. It really was. Uh, I mean, I got paid, but uh, um, I, I, I don't, I don't want to relitigate it. Uh, but there were a couple of things that were small but particular, not pivotal, but particular, uh, that I was very proud of, and that was you know under somebody else's name. But mo- more in the second than the first. I read that you have a new film coming out, Guernica. Guernica is my first ever grown-up movie. No teenage witches. No vampire detectives. Uh, it's a story based on something my mother told me once a long time ago, set in the Spanish Civil War at the bombing of Guernica, which is famous be- mostly because of the Picasso painting. Uh, and it's a, it's a love story, a fading American journalist based part on Hemingway and part on myself, meets a beautiful Spanish propagandist uh, working for the left um, who is having a sort of a love-hate relationship with her Russian boss because the Soviets sent a lot of people to Spain to fight the fascists and hopefully make Spain communist. This is one of those things where the distribution did kind of get screwed up. Part of the deal, the movie was an independent movie made by, I think it was six companies in four countries. I wrote the script with Carlos Clavillo Cobos. Apparently, as I understand it, um, the part of the deal with the Spanish distributor had to had to have a month where it distributed all by itself in Spain, which they did. And we got wonderful reviews. It was really nice reviews. But that was supposed to happen back in May. Uh, and it didn't happen until uh, uh, July. And so the, everything kind of got bollocked up. And the DVD came out just a couple of days ago before the domestic release. So it's probably going to be a television movie or seem like a television movie here in the U.S. And it is already a feature overseas, you know, in Europe. I like the movie quite a bit. That's another one where you have a vision, but the director also has a vision and he's the boss. So the vision movie is not the same as the vision that I went in with. Uh, But it's a pretty good movie, I have to say. If I'm not being hired by somebody, I will spec because my fingers get ants in their pants. And uh, I spec a script called Golden Arrows, which is a feature-length version of Apuleius's, um, um Cupid and Psyche myth. Latin is Eros and Psyche. The producer, Tony Eldridge, it's not on the IMDb yet, but I'm allowed to talk about it. Tony Eldridge, E-L-D-R-I-D-G-E, 
who's the producer of the Denzel Washington Equalizer movies and the upcoming Benedict Cumberbatch War Magicians, picked it up. I thought originally for a feature, but what he wants to do with it, which I'm thrilled to death about because I'm basically a TV guy, uh, is a, a limited um, series on, you know, like HBO or Stars or something like that. back and we are wrapping up our discussion of killer party so i want to thank you guys so much for coming on the show and especially for you know first time viewing cat i'm, I'm glad that you uh, managed to survive killer party no thank you i really enjoyed it really enjoyed it i want to know what's the haps with you what's been going on there's been lots of haps so people who know me will know i'm the editor-in-chief for diabolique magazine and we're currently running an italian season on the site we've had loads of amazing essays for that written by a writer so that's been really exciting but i recently signed a contract to write a book on the film daughters of darkness which is of course the name of my podcast which i co-host with sam deegan and we've been doing some italian themed episodes for that as well we've done three on the art giallo and we've got episodes of on elio petri coming up and then finally another big hap is um I think it's out now, due to come out. I did the liner notes for Arrow's Burnt Offerings release. And I also did an essay for their film, their Woody Allen box set, the first one they've done for Sleeper. So that's my haps. Fantastic. That's that's quite a wide range of, of films there between the Daughters of Darkness and Sleeper, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm everywhere. I'm all over everything. I'm, you know, like that. No, no loyalty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm very impressed, and I'm a huge fan of uh, Daughters of Darkness. It's one of my new favorite podcasts to listen to. Why? Thank you very much. Yeah, the amount of research that you guys do on the show is fantastic, and you you have a real good repartee between the two of you. It's really nice to listen to the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, me and Sam are really good friends anyway, but we are both as insane as each other, so that helps. But oh. <laughs> Our research knows no band, but this is what we think of as fun. We spend our weekends having conference calls and talking about our research because we, wow. <laughs> we 
weird. Well, Sam is going to be on the show in November when we do Strange on the Third Floor. I'm really looking forward to talking to her about that. Yeah, I'm really looking nice. forward to hearing her episode. So, Jim, how about you? What keeps you out of the bars? Well, I certainly uh, don't do as much writing as I like, but I am constantly podcasting. Um, you can find me podcasting about film directors, uh, covering one per episode over at Directors Club, which you can uh, check out at directorsclubpodcast.com. And I also do a spinoff interview show over at Pop Culture Club, and that's at popcultureclub.net. And uh, I highly encourage everybody to visit now playingnetwork.net because that is the network I started up to host uh, a variety of great film and music podcasts like Patrick Rapole's Tracks of the Damned which is an horror audio commentary podcast and especially Bill Ackerman's wonderful supporting characters which you were on Mike and that was a great episode. Well he is fantastic and I was really honored to be on that show and I encourage people to listen to that because other than the episode I was on it's a really terrific show so definitely check Check it out. And every week he's kind of spotlighting somebody who really needs to, you know, have a little bit more attention paid to them. So, and God, I mean, talking to Danny Peary, that was a terrific interview. He's He's got a real gift. He being Bill, he's got a real gift for interviewing and does a terrific job. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on, Mike. It was an honor to be on one of my favorite movie podcasts out there. <laughs> well, it was great having you guys on. I will be sure to link over to your stuff over at the website projection-booth.com. That's also where you can find links to our Patreon, where you can donate to the show and you can also find a link over to itunes where you can rate and review the show every rating every review every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.